This podcast supports the Innocent Lives Foundation, ILF. The ILF is made up of security professionals whose mission is to identify anonymous child predators and help bring them to justice. The professionals are volunteers who are masters in everything from open source intelligence to exploit writing, who donate their time to identify child predators and hand cases over to law enforcement agencies. With their non-vigilante stance, they do everything in their power to create airtight cases for law enforcement agencies. You can join this fight by donating to the ILF to directly fund this powerful mission. To learn more about the ILF and to donate, please visit their website at www.innocentliesfoundation.org. Thank you. Welcome to episode 34 of the Bid Picture Podcast. My name is Bidemir Logunde. This podcast presents lessons you can learn from fascinating cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and how those lessons can influence our decisions, thoughts, opinions, and lifestyle choices, as well as how everything fits together to form the bigger picture of online security in this digital age. Today on the show, I'll be talking about tips on how to increase cybersecurity awareness in the workplace. Um, how social media companies have vowed to reduce the abuse of women online. Um, the news um, where Google shuts down apps on the Play Store because they steal Facebook credentials. And finally, I'll wrap up the episode by talking about Iceland's successful trial of a four-day work week. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. So in the first segment, I'll be talking about how to increase cybersecurity awareness in the workplace. On January 15th, a threat actor tried to poison the water being processed at a San Francisco Bay Area water treatment plant by using a former employee's team viewer account credentials. So after getting access to the plant, the threat actor then deleted programs that the water plant uses to treat drinking, drinking water. And that intrusion was not detected until the following day. That's one... Um, major incident that affected a water treatment plant in San Francisco in California in the United States. Another incident happened about a month later on February 5. Um, a threat actor attempted to increase the concentration of lye, which is a chemical used to treat the water supply to Oldsmar, a suburb of Tampa, Florida. The attack was caught in real time and then reversed before any major damage could be done. On May 7th, there was a ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline, one of the, which is one of the largest oil pipeline operators in the U.S. The attack led to a shutdown of about 5,500 miles of oil pipelines and led to gas shortages across the entire east coast of the United States. So despite all these incidents um, and how they received significant coverage in the news, a recent survey by ARMIS, A-R-M-I-S, which is a cybersecurity provider, showed that 21% of security professionals that were surveyed had not heard about the attack against Colonial Pipeline, and 45% of the respondents were not aware of the hack against the Florida water treatment plant. However, on the bright side, 86% of the respondents said they believed that attacks on critical services such as oil suppliers, healthcare services, police departments, meat processing plants, and water treatment facilities could have a major impact on everyday life. So now, it's one thing for people to be aware of cyber attacks on society. It's something else entirely for people to be aware of the cybersecurity risks that they themselves 
expose to their own organizations as employees. So we all know that the pandemic has forced many people to work from home and then use personal devices for work projects. For example, printers. Now that corporate offices are starting to open up again, many employees are moving to a hybrid model of working both at home and in the office. As such, they are more likely to bring the same devices from home or another remote location into the office. So how much that poses a security risk to organizations is entirely subjective. If an organization tightly secures those devices that employees are bringing back into the office and then ensure that employees follow proper cybersecurity hygiene, then the risk should be minimal. However, this is not always the case. 71% of security professionals surveyed by armies said they plan to bring their work-from-home devices back into the office. Um, and 54% said they don't believe that their personal devices pose any threat to the organization. However, 27% said that their companies don't have any existing policies to secure both work and personal devices. So knowing or being familiar with the specifics of a recent major cyber attack does not translate to employees knowing which phishing links to click or not to click on. And when employees generate security alert due to something they did, having a discussion with them in a non-hostile manner will help them frame those moments as educational opportunities. Like I mentioned in a few episodes back, shaming people doesn't bring about any significant positive change. Phishing simulations have yielded some results, but it is important to make sure that security awareness is relevant to what the employee actually sees in their day-to-day job functions. So, for example, a phishing phishing email training awareness should be tailored to um, the department an employee works in. So people in accounting should see a phishing email training exercise that is similar to what an accounting employee would see in their day-to-day function, similar to a paralegal, similar to a network security professional, and so on. In general, cybersecurity awareness should be tailored to what is relevant to employees. Um, Also, employees' awareness and understanding of cybersecurity is vital as most attacks are directed toward them. A lack of awareness turns an employee into an easy target for a cyber criminal looking to access an organization's network via a phishing attack or social engineering or several of the other ways um, threat actors use to get into an organization. So the other ways to improve an organization's cybersecurity, um, cybersecurity culture include adopting a password manager across the entire organization to improve password security for every employee. Then remove local admin privileges for standard users. There's no reason why they should have local admin privileges. If they're just a standard user, they don't need admin privileges for their day-to-day functions. Next, set up multi-factor authentication, especially for email systems, virtual private networks, VPNs, and privileged accounts. And then lastly, invest in a dedicated security awareness um, team made up of people who are not just security professionals, but people with a sales and marketing background who know how to engage with and educate others. 
So it's one thing to know what to pass across to, to train your employees. It's another thing to deliver that message in a way that employees would actually resonate with and connect with. So it's not just going to be something where they are required to tick a box or watch a video. Most people just fast forward the video to the end so that they can get to the end of the entire video training as quickly as possible. And they're not necessarily learning anything from those training videos. So the next segment I have here is how social media companies vow to reduce the abuse of women online. So at the United Nations Generation Equality Forum that recently wrapped up in Paris, France on Friday, July 2nd, social media giants, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and TikTok, they all committed to changing their moderation policies to protect women from abuse online. The forum was organized by the World Wide Web Forum, WWWF, and it kicked off in Mexico City, Mexico back in March, but then concluded in Paris, France um, between June 30th, that was last week Wednesday, and Friday, July 2nd, 2021. The commitments from these social media giants focused on two major areas, content curation and online abuse reporting. So on the curation side, the workshops found that women needed more control over what they see online and who could comment on their post. They also highlighted the need for better systems to report abusive content. Each commitment has four considerations. So on the curation side, com- companies must um, offer more granular settings over who can see and reply to posts. They must also provide more accessible language throughout the user experience, easy na- navigation, and also access to safety tools and actively reduce the amount of abuse that women see online. The reporting commitments, on the other hand, requires companies to offer users the ability to manage and track their reports, increase their capacity to address context and language, provide more policy and product guidance when reporting abuse, and establish additional channels for help and support during the reporting process. The WWWF said it would measure the company's performance in these areas and report it annually. The foundation cited an Economist Intelligence Unit, um, a report by the Economist Intelligence Unit that measured violence against women and found out that 85% of women reported witnessing online violence against other women. That's, that's a huge number, 85%, including those outside their networks. It also found that 38% had personally experienced online abuse. The most common abuse was misinformation and defamation, as 67% of survey respondents experienced both of them. The least common types of abuse were violent threats, which an alarming 52% of survey respondents reported experiencing. Other abuse tactics included publishing personal information, impersonation, sharing damaging information across multiple platforms, image and video-based abuse, and also cyber-stalking or hacking. Some of the tech firms supporting the commitments have some work to do regarding the more equitable treatment of various groups, both online and offline. TikTok, for example, has drawn criticism for allegedly telling moderators to suppress videos from users who are deemed not attractive or rich enough and also from users with disabilities. Google, which already changed its harassment reporting policies following a mass employee walkout, drew flack late last year, last year for allegedly dismissing the um, artificial intelligence ethics colleague um, Timnit Gebru 
after she questioned the company's treatments of women and people of color. Last year, Plan International sent an open letter to social media platforms demanding action after its survey found that harassment across the most popular platforms is driving girls and young women offline. So after the break, I'm going to talk about how Google shut down some apps on the Play Store because they were stealing Facebook credentials and also Iceland's successful trial of a four-day work week. Stay with us. So Google recently shut down um, 10 malicious apps from its Play Store because they have been identified as stealing users' Facebook name, usernames and passwords. And the most popular of these apps is a photo editing software called PIP Photo, which has been installed more than 5 million times. Other apps that allowed access limitations for using other software included AppLock Key, AppLock Manager and LockKit Master which were collectively downloaded approximately 65,000 times. Other identified apps are Rubbish Cleaner, which is advertised as an app that optimizes device performance. Um, there's also a Horoscope Daily and InWell Fitness. All the apps are fully functional, and they do exactly what the developers claim they do, although they also ask users to log in using their Facebook credentials in order to disable in-app ads. The malicious apps serve as a reminder for the propensity of Google's Play Store to often be found to be hosting malware disguised as legitimate software. In 2020, security researchers found thousands of apps embedded with Mandrake spyware, which remained undetected for four years. In addition, security researchers also found six apps loaded with Joker fleeceware. So a fleeceware app is basically an app that just somehow gets you to keep purchasing stuff to be able to use the full functionality of the app and disguises all of this as just a way to make money from their users without necessarily providing anything of value. So last week, Google announced that starting later this year, developers must provide a number of personal details as well as adopt two-factor authentication for logging into their own account. When creating a new account, developers must supply an email address and a phone number in addition to a contact name and physical address. They will also be required to state whether their accounts are personal or professional. So next up, I have um, Iceland's successful trial of a four-day work week. So Iceland recently experimented with a four-day work week where more than 2,500 people, which represent about 1% of the country's workforce, participated in two government-backed trials. So many of them saw their work weeks um, reduced to 35 hours from 40 hours without a reduction in pay and saw no significant loss in productivity. And this is according to a joint analysis of the trials of both trials by the United Kingdom Future of Work think tank um, called Autonomy, as well as the Icelandic Association of Sustainability and Democracy. 
The results add credence to the concept of a four-day work week without a significant pay cut, which has been increasingly pushed as a remedy for improving work-life balance, boosting employee performance, and helping the environment. The trials were initiated by the Reykjavik City Council, that's the capital of Iceland, and the National Government of Iceland, following lobbying by civil society groups and trade unions, which claimed that the nation lagged behind most of its Nordic neighbors in terms of work-life balance. The first trial took place in the capital, Reykjavik, from 2014 to 2019, and initially saw childcare and service center workers cut their hours to 25 hours per week, down from 40 hours per week. It then expanded to encompass staff members in the mayor's office and care homes. So the second trial, which was conducted from 2017 to 2021 this year, saw 440 civil servants from several national government agencies reduce reduce their hours as well. Their roles covered both traditional 9-to-5-hour roles and also um, people that work irregular shift patterns. So contrary to claims that working reduced hours could be counterproductive and actually lead staff members to work longer, the analysis suggests that overall, there was no loss of productivity or quality of service provided. In fact, teams were encouraged to work more efficiently by reducing the meeting times, um, reorganizing their schedules, and improving communication between departments. There was also generally an improvement in worker well-being. Perceived level of stress and burnout fell in many cases, with many employees saying they felt more positive and happier at work as a result of the new regime. Participants say reduced hours meant they could spend more time exercising and socializing, which in some cases had an impact on their work performance. And in workplaces where there was no noticeable improvement in well-being, there was also no noticeable decrease. Iceland, however, is not only the national government to, to test the concept of a four-day work week. In May of this year, 2021, the Spanish government approved plans for a three-year pilot program and pledged 50 million euros to support businesses that are implementing the plans. In New Zealand, the Prime Minister um, Jacinda Ardern has also highlighted the concept as a means of helping the economy bounce back from the coronavirus pandemic. In 2020, Iceland ranked 10th for the shortest working hours, according to latest figures by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, with Icelandic workers averaging about 1,435 hours per year. In Germany, the workers um, had the least hours in 2020. They averaged about 1,332 hours. The 27 European Union countries collectively ranked 13th, averaging 1,513 hours. And in the U.S., um, the U.S. ranked 35th, with workers averaging 1,767 hours. So that's all I have for today's episode of The Beat Picture. The production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe to The Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcast from. 
please share the show with anyone you think might benefit from it and for questions comments or any suggestions please send an email to bdme at thebeatpicture.com you can also get in touch on twitter at beatpicture please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your podcast platform allows you to do so it will really help to promote the podcast thank you for your time and see you on the next episode bye for now